0: Disaster struck on the 4th of April 1906 when Mount Vesuvius erupted, killing over 100 people and destroying Naples. Thanks to this tragedy, the Italians planning on organising the 1908 Olympics in Rome were given a convenient excuse to get rid of the games they never really wanted. So London took on the challenge and so with it delivered a six-month-long Olympics filled with transatlantic rivalry, national pride, heroic losers And some winter sports? Yes, it is the 1908 Olympics in London. And joining myself en route today is a very, very special guest. A former triple jump and football prodigy turned cycling aficionado who occasionally goes on world tours performing his unique brand of very low energy Musical whimsy. It's David O'Doherty.
1: I love that when
0: you thought, 1908
1: Olympics, who will we get? Who will we get?
2: <laughs> there could only ever have been one choice, you, for 1908.
1: Well, I mean, a lot of people remember the 1990 East Leinster under-14s triple jump bronze medalist. And mm-hmm. my grand—my grandfather, this is actually true, guys, had won the Tolshin Games in '34. And went to the 36 Olympics because Ireland didn't send a team. Uh, he went as a fake journalist from an Irish language magazine and really thought Hitler was doing a great job and stood up at a large dinner, apparently, uh, with the world's media there. And when they put the mic in his face, he said, uh, I hope uh, Mr. de Valera can do as good a job as Mr. Hitler has done with these autobahns. So that's my family at athletics. <laughs> What a pedigree!
2: He didn't do uh, such a good job at the autobahns.
1: It turns out my grandfather wasn't as influential. Maybe my twenty-four-year-old grandfather wasn't. Yeah, he did. He brought a brownie camera, and in the family, there's photos of uh, Jesse Owens winning the hundred meters or whatever it was called then. Wow,
0: love it. Now, uh, Ruth, you have a, a bit of a public announcement to give before we go on today. Would you like to share it with us?
2: Yes, I have a public statement that I would like. To make now. On the 13th of August 2020, an Olympopod was broadcast in which I seem to suggest the 100 metre is overrated. I was rightly the subject of criticism due to this statement, and I wish now to apologise unreservedly to everyone affected by my words, including my co-host Chris, the IOC, the Diamond League and Jamaica. I maintain that there's way too much faffing about at the start. However, Having taken these last few days to educate myself on the merits of the 100 metres, I have reassessed my assertion that it's too fast. If anything, maybe it's a few hundredths of a second too slow. I wish to take this moment to reassure all listeners and athletes that I will will not be removing the event from the Olympic schedule at any point in the near future. I am constantly growing as a multi-sport spectator, and I ask you to respect my privacy at this time. End statement.
1: Wow. Wowee. Yeah, I'd stopped training for it since you'd said that uh, on the podcast, Ruth. So I, I, I might go back now.
2: Yeah, no, you should. And like, as I said, maybe run it a bit faster. Um, it, seems, it seems like seems like people can definitely do a sub 9.5, yeah?
1: I don't know. I don't know.
2: I've, I've been watching, because like I've been watching it a lot over the last few days to make, to kind of, you know, come to this point of, you know, Appreciation. And it seems a lot like Usain Bolt, he kind of coasted the start and the middle. Like, if he had just, you know, run really, really fast from the start, the middle and the end, like, he could totally have done it in under nine seconds. No? Chris?
0: <laughs> I refuse to comment on this. <laughs> well, you're not going to like uh, the 100 meter sprinters of this time in 1908 because they were far, far slower. I thought that was more to your liking, though, originally.
2: No, 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 no. Sorry. sorry. All I said was like, it was just, it kind of gets, it's just over. But now I'm now having watched it a few times more with the eye to educating myself. Yeah, it's very impressive. But I I just, you know, there's a lot of, like, as I said, faffing about at the start where they're all like going, hey, hey, like, good, like a good 90 seconds of that. And then nine seconds later, we're done. Or 9.7
1: seconds later. <laughs> Interesting. So you think it's over too quickly. So you want something. I mean, I dare say possibly some hurdles along it, thus changing it into maybe a different event.
2: Yes.
0: Perhaps adding 10 more meters to it for the men only. Yes. (laughs) Oh my God. That's a great idea. The 110 meter hurdles. (laughs) Oh, Ruth, I don't think that's going to... Well, I mean, you, you gave us your, your message and you asked for some privacy and time to, to reflect, but I think you've just added more fire. I don't think the the fans of the 100 meter are going to let this lie. Guys, I'm not a international athlete, but I've been playing a lot of Mario
1: Kart during lockdown, and on the Moo Moo Meadows track, they, there are some sheep. And maybe that's something that IOC could do just to slow down the 100 meters. have some sheep maybe just one or two somewhere on the track
2: yeah mm. and
1: actually Add a
0: bit of randomness um, to it.
2: in the 1908 games like they didn't really have any markings on the track which i think also kind of makes it a bit interesting as well because then you can kind of like shove people
0: well we're going to get to that ruth that's that's the one of our biggest controversies of the whole thing
2: <laughs> sorry sorry spoiler
0: it's all part of the big american <laughs> And British rivalry, which pretty much took over this whole Olympics. As I mentioned in the intro, that we had originally planned to go to Rome for this Olympics. But it seemed like the Italians never really wanted it. They were a bit uh, financially tight at the time. And the Olympics weren't really advertisement for great international sporting events. We'd had a few disasters in Paris and St. Louis. And the intercalated Games in 1906 kind of started to save the day. So the British took it on a pretty short notice. And uh, those of you who listened to the last podcast will remember the OG ballers, the British fencing team, and they had a pretty big part to play in bringing the Olympics over as well. And Lord Desborough came to the rescue as he managed to convince the king to uh, host the Games in 1908. A pretty multi-talented guy as well, a real gentleman. He was the Oxford Athletics captain. He was the rowing president. He'd rowed across the channel. He'd swam the Niagara Falls. He'd climbed the Matterhorn. So he was a real uh, adventurous man. And he was the one who managed to convince King Edward to host the Games in London. But they needed quite a bit of help because they only had two years to get it going. Uh, They had a few of the... Venues set in stone. Wimbledon, of course, for the tennis. They had uh, Henley for the rowing, but they needed a stadium. And so they went to a Hungarian-born man called Imre Kiralfi, who was one half of the Kiralfi brothers, who were a highly influential burlesque and spectacle producers. So I guess they had the fringe of the turn of the 19th century There were contemporaries and one-time colleagues of Phineas Barnum as well, who is of the greatest showman fame. So they turned to him and said, Imre, we need a stadium and we need it fast. You've got 10 months to build us something. And he said he would do it. Not only would he do it, but he would give them some money for the contract as well. All he wanted was a mere 75% of ticket receipts. So they agreed to that, desperate to get something done. So he built the White City Stadium, the first purpose-built sports stadium of modern times. And it was one hell of a stadium as well. Built within 10 months. It had a cycling track on the outside. And just inside of that, you had a running track. Inside of that, you had an infield for throwing and jumping and for hockey and football. Beside that, you had a swimming pool. And then you had podiums for boxing and wrestling. All of that within one stadium. So it really was the focal point of the games. And depending on who you ask, uh, capacity for 68 to 90,000 people.
2: Am I right in saying that for the rugby matches, they had to like push mattresses um, around just so that the players didn't fall into the swimming pool?
0: (laughs) And you see some video clips as well. And it's like you see a water polo match going on and then bikes going around the track as well. It's, uh, it's absolutely nuts. I mean, I don't know how you'd focus on everything going on. You just have to choose one sport and, uh, and stick to it, I guess. Yeah. I love the idea
1: that you could do a triathlon in the stadium without leaving the stadium. I
0: mean, I would watch that, certainly.
2: Yeah. And you could also get the pentathlon done. Presumably, you can bring courses in as well, yeah?
0: Uh, why not? I mean, <laughs> you've got everything else in there.
1: This is controversial, you guys, but you've booked a Danger Dog for your podcast But in my opinion, golf should only be allowed in the Olympics if you play it in the stadium full of spectators as well. You know, where you're just whacking the ball from one end to the other, maybe with little greens among the crowd Then brings a sort of a death element to it.
2: You can introduce that as a sport later. <laughs> we have a segment.
0: Have we not already taken golf out?
2: We have. We'll be, we might be able to bring we can it, put back it back in. in. Yeah, yeah. Mm. stadium golf.
0: I know this is an influential
1: podcast, but it is technically in for the 2020 Olympics in 2021,
0: isn't it? At the moment.
2: Once we complete all 33 Olympopods, we'll be submitting our new schedule to the IOC, and they can they can ignore it at their peril.
0: Okay. I'll be watching out for it david we gave you some homework to do and build up to the pod and uh, look at a couple of sports in particular i think some connected with your national pride and some connected with your love of sports in particular what was your favorite event at these 1908 olympics
1: well i do like dueling was in it just as i think what i really like with dueling so it was um It wasn't a a death, we're talking about death a lot on the podcast, but it wasn't, uh, it was with wax bullets that just exploded on impact. So I guess a modern equivalent would be quasar or a laser tag of some kind. But what I like is the idea of just your regular PE class and the teacher saying, okay, today we're going to introduce you children to the world of dueling. So everyone take out your wax bullets and let's shoot each other. That would have been... um, that would have been a good sport. And then the other sport that I liked from uh, 1908, which I think was the last time it was in, was real tennis, which was jeu de paume. You didn't use your hand, presumably jeu de paume. I'm no French colleges, but that must mean tennis of the hand. And yet you used a bloody racket. No,
2: no, no. no. They were two different sports. Jeu de pomme and real tennis are, are different. Real tennis and uh, Chris is quite the aficionado of real tennis.
0: David is right. Yes, it was it's an evolution from jeu de pomme or a game of the hand to the real tennis, which we know it as today, which about 20 people in the world know it as today. So it was indeed real tennis.
2: David, I, I, I'm i issuing a second apology, <laughs> second apology of the uh,
1: podcast. <laughs> All of my friends, when I was in university, lived in a share house and the share house sitting room was a little bit bigger than a table tennis table. So obviously there was a table tennis table in the sitting room. And the only way you could play table tennis was to use, we used to play a game called real table tennis, where you use the walls, there was a lampshade just over the uh, the court, we'll call it the court and if you sort of twanged up you could hit the lampshade and it would go down for a winner winner chicken dinner so what I'm saying is I would have been great at Jeux de Palme
2: and there is a real tennis court in Dublin now it, it's dilapidated, it hasn't been used since 1922 I think um, but there is currently a small but active uh, campaign by Real Tennis Ireland to get it <laughs> refurbished
0: <laughs> Maybe we need to bring real table tennis Ireland into it as well. We need to, to bring you know, we could have a side court for real table tennis. Get this motion going again.
1: Real right. everything. Break, yeah. yeah, real um real snooker is one where you can chip it off the walls. You know what I mean? There's a lot of sports that could do with a real version of itself. Mm. Yeah.
0: Your death golf is a bit like real golf, right?
1: Yeah, it's actually, mm. yeah, real golf. Amazing. That's crazy brackets, not crazy golf though, because that's a Uh-oh. separate one as well. <laughs>
2: On the dueling, like, aside from it being absolutely brilliant, and I agree with David that, like, it's a very good life skill to teach children. There was a poll done in the run-up to the 2000 Sydney Olympics where 32% of respondents said that they'd like to see dueling with uh, pistols uh, reinstated as a sport. I mean, I don't know how how large the sample size was. And, I mean, I would have voted yes as well without really thinking about it. So I think, so I'm not not sure. I think the dueling is great.
0: I've got a question to you about that poll, though. I'm really intrigued. Was it 32% of people given an option? Yes or no? Or an option of sports? Or there's 32% of people came up with this individually as something they wanted to see at the Olympics?
2: Chris, I got this off the Royal Armories.org uh, blog post on dueling. I'm not overly sure about the veracity, but I, I think it's it sounds very believable that thirty two percent of people wanted dueling. I mean, at least sixty-six percent of people in this on this current podcast want to see a reinstation, so
1: I, I just think with dueling, I'm talking about proper dueling, real dueling, not this uh, wax bullets version. You must be tempted to cheat because if you do cheat, the other person's dead. And mm-hmm. who's going to complain about it then, really?
2: I think you can be done for murder if you cheat.
1: Oh, so you, you're you not done for murder if no. you legitimately win at dueling?
2: I'm not a dueling expert and I don't think like it's really gone to the courts that much recently. <laughs> but like, I feel if I was to set the rules of dueling, I feel like, yeah, I would jail the person who like cheated. Because like that's it. That's that's it's unfair. Otherwise, there needs, to be, there needs to be a gentleman's agreement if you're doing duelling. So, yeah, there was plenty of shooting at the 1908 Games. Joshua Milner from Dublin, Ireland, became the oldest gold medalist when he won the 1,000 yard rifle event at the age of 61 years and four days. Sweden's Oscar Swan was 60, so much younger, and won gold in both the single shot running deer, not a real deer, the team single shot running deer, was not a real deer? As well as a bronze in the double shot running deer. I have no information on whether that was a real deer or not. Probably not. But he would go on to be the oldest ever gold medalist when he won again in Stockholm four years later. And he also competed in Antwerp and got a the silver. There was dueling as a demonstration event. It wasn't actually a real event. So even though 32% who say they want it reinstated, it was never actually fully in now i don't know i haven't been able to find a huge amount of information about it like do you think they had to walk away from each other do you know like for 30 strides and then turn and face or did, or did they just like were they just 20 meters away from each other
1: in dueling i mean we're to, sorry we're talking a lot about dueling now but do you, i think you probably need a third party who says something
2: mm-hmm. now
1: a dangerous gig to be the third person when two people are swirling around with um with with guns, I sometimes mix dueling with in cowboy movies. This quick draw, where you have to pull the gun out of the holster. But to the best of my knowledge, that has never been in the Olympics. The um, a, a side note from my extensive investigations, Ruth. I was reading about Gerry Milner, the Irish guy, the 61-year-old Irish guy who won that gold medal. He kind of invented his own technique. He was lying on his back with his feet pointing at the target, and he supported the rifle with his left foot, apparently. And one of the things I love about the Olympics and sport generally, and I hope this hasn't ended, is people like the classic Dick Frosbury thing, whereby you just arrive at an Olympics with a whole new way of doing a thing that no one's ever seen before. And I do wonder if, that, if there's room for that going forward. Will somebody try and, you know, do a somersault triple jump at some point and everyone will suddenly be like, oh, that's actually the best way to do it now. Is there room, any room for that left in modern Olympics?
0: Hmm. Well, golf is, is really back in the Olympics very recently. So surely there's some kind of, particularly if we do bring in deadly golf, that there has to be some kind of innovations and in technique. Golf. But, oh, what could you have? Now, leave, leave me with that one. I'll think about it.
2: I like how we mentioned, I think it was the 1900 games that the Americans arrived and uh, brought a new way of jumping over the hurdle, which didn't involve stopping at each hurdle. <laughs> yeah, you know, that was a that was pretty good.
1: Innovation. <laughs> so up until that, people had sort of checked their stride and like thrown a leg over, like they were going over a gate. Yeah. Almost, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it's not good. Wow. There's um. So there's a photo of my grandfather in the Tolshin Games doing 400. I guess it's 440 hurdles. Uh, but the, like I know nowadays in the in the 400 hurdles, the hurdles are pretty piddly, height. But these look like full height. And also they don't seem to have the knocking over mechanism that they have now. So you would just be absolutely creasing yourself into these uh, little gates, basically.
0: Yeah. Can you blame them then for, for staggering their run and just being a bit cautious? Because, you know, if you don't clear it perfectly, then you are absolutely wrecking yourself. I hear what you're saying, Chris.
1: But what I'm also hearing is <laughs> put piranhas in the steeplechase water jump. <gasps>
2: Yes, or at least geese.
1: Yes, angry a geese. A couple of
2: geese. Yeah, a couple of geese in there. Perfect.
1: <laughs> this has gone very Mario Kart now. <laughs>
2: Back to, like, we are going to finish talking about dueling very soon, I promise. But I think it's important to mention that one of the competitors uh, was Sir Cosmo Duff Gordon, who, of course, we talked about uh, in the intercalations of the for his ostentatious lifestyle. Uh, Chris called him a baller. I think I called him a pointer. But somehow we completely glossed over the fact that on the 15th of April 1912, he was the guy who jumped into the first lifeboat on the Titanic, then launched with only 12 on board with a capacity of 40. Um, when this became public knowledge, he faced massive amounts of criticism, though he was later legally exonerated by an inquiry into the disaster. He claimed there were no women or children in the vicinity at the time he boarded the lifeboat.
1: Wow. I'm gonna I'm gonna mark him under not baller, but scoundrel for that. I think that could be full scoundrel behavior.
0: That
2: could be full scoundrel That's behavior. It's
0: a winner's mentality. That's why he was an Olympian. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Like Chris, you've cancelled people before. Because, like they just because they turned up to an event on a Sunday, but now like it's winner mentality.
0: You've you've convinced me, Ruth, that it's a dog eat dog world out there, and it kind of goes in line with what David was saying about dueling. You know, what's the worst that can happen if you go first? Are you going to get disqualified or are you going to die? I don't think that's going to go down well. But look, <laughs> winner mentality.
2: many women competed
1: in 1908 oh
2: no there was 2008 i think altogether competitors i think wow
1: take. so it's going to be i don't know 500 no whoa
2: <laughs> <laughs> a visionary you are no it was 37 37 whole women in archery and figure skating but now so that was the figure that i've seen
0: I've got a surprise for you, Ruth.
2: Oh, okay.
0: Yes, because there were 37 women competing in officially for medals. Yes, but there were seven more women, women who we spoke about in the last podcast. They were (gasps) the Sexy sexy Danes. They're back.
2: The Sexy Gymnasts are back.
0: Sexy Danish Gymnasts were back for a demonstration, not competing for medals, where I read in David Goldblatt's book, They attracted the attention of all in the arena with their graceful proportions of their nether limbs.
2: (laughs) They do have really nice nether limbs, in fairness. They
0: sure did. So the sexy Danes were back, and that brought it up to 44 altogether, but 37 competing for medals. Yeah,
2: there was also at least two in the sailing. And there were, so with the sailing, there were scheduled to be five classes. The 6, the 7, the 8, the 12 and the 15 metre. Nobody turned up for the 15 metre. Only two turned up for the 12 metre and one uh, in the 7 (laughs) metre. But there was an embarrassment of participants in the 8 metres with five teams from three nations. One from Norway, two boats from Sweden and two from Britain. And on one of those British boats, there was a lady. So, yeah, mm mm-hmm. Constance Edwina Grosvenor, known as Sheila, the Duchess of Westminster, she owned one of the boats and was carried as a so-called extra crewman. Uh, She was a noted beauty and socialite and a bit of an aspiring adventuress. Her boat came third overall after three races. So as well as her bronze medal, she also got a silver commemorative medal for being the best woman. Which isn't, actually, <laughs> which isn't actually true because the Royal Gothenburg Yacht Club and Carl Wiswick, the owners of the second and fourth place finishers, also got commemorative medals. So actually, the only person who didn't get a commemorative medal was the person who came in fifth, which is a bit sad. Aww. She distributed certificates of special merit on the final day of the Olympics. So perhaps she was able to bag one for herself. And uh, one of her daughters, Mary, became a keen sailor too and also a fairly successful rally and racing driver.
1: That's amazing. My only Olympic thing from my parents is, so my mother played hockey for Ireland in the late 50s and played with Maeve Kyle, who went to the 56 Olympics, I think did 100 meters. And she was told before she went to Melbourne, where run in a long skirt. Like don't run, everyone's running in these horrible short to show off their graceful proportions ironically the clergy of ireland did not want Maeve kyle to show off her legs to the people in sweltering australia and she said absolutely and then went to australia and ran in a short skirt
0: yeah (laughs) what a rebel i love that uh david i know you're a real cycling aficionado and you cover great distances have you ever tried to do it on your feet
1: Oh, you're talking about cycling without a bike, AKA running. Mm. I mean, what is a bike if not just an improvement on the legs? So I say, why would you bother going back in time? It'd be like me, instead of talking to you over a fancy MacBook Pro now, if I was talking to you on an Atari 2600, that's how I feel about running.
0: Okay.
2: (laughs) David O'Darty, famously anti legs.
0: Uh, Well, there were some marathon runners who would agree with you, previous Olympics anyway, who were known for cheating through various methods with either taking a taxi or taking uh, copious amounts of strychnine uh, to help them get over the finish line. But this marathon, I think this is one of my favorite stories of the 1908 Games because it had probably the Olympics' first real heroic loser and someone who became internationally famous afterwards one of the real first real superstars in 20th century sport and it was also known for quite a while as the race of the century everyone caught marathon fever after this the new york times said it was the spectacle the like of which none living had ever seen and none who saw it expected to be repeated the first year olympic marathons they they were all around 25 miles there wasn't a set distance for it after the first Olympics, which was from Marathon to the Olympic Stadium in Athens. This one, however, would set the standard forever, but for unusual reasons. Originally, they were going to have it at about 25 miles again, but they wanted it to begin at Windsor Castle. However, that made the course a lot longer, so they decided to just change the plans and make it 26 miles and then run another two thirds of a lap around the track so the finish line would be right in front of the royal box so it was very royal connected here turns out people were pretty happy with the distance and it became the set distance maybe because of what happened in the race itself now it was a very international affair we had 55 athletes from 16 nations and the result of it would be a heated discussion for decades afterwards Roger Robinson, who's, I think, a noted uh, athletics writer, he said that it was probably the best-attended athletics event of all time, with two to three people deep lines throughout the 26 miles. We had one man in particular, captures the hearts and the imagination of us all in this story. It's the Italian, Durando Pietri. He began the race at a fairly slow pace, while everyone went out way too fast in a sweltering hot day in london they all started to struggle and their refreshment stops with the likes of hot and cold oxo rice pudding raisins eau de cologne and brandy did not really help the athletes uh, on such a day Eau
1: de cologne really sticks out <laughs> as uh not it's not like an energy gel is it it's different
0: <laughs> i think the style and how you smell was a big uh, big part of it as well because uh a lot of admirers along the way. Now, David Goldblatt also reckons there was strychnine involved in this one, but we don't need to go into that too much because we had more than enough strychnine in uh, 1904. So uh, not to not to worry about the rat poison here in 1908, but uh, Durando Pietri, yeah, he um, surged through the course in the second half of the marathon, and by the 20-mile mark, he was gaining on a South African runner called Charles Heffron, who is in the lead and a... Native American representing Canada, Tom Longboat, was also in the top three. Heffron, two miles before the end, reckoning he had won, took a glass of champagne from an admirer in the crowd. He downed it to cheers from the crowd. But half a mile later, it hit him pretty darn hard as he had to pull out with alcohol-induced cramps. So after that...
2: So I'm just going to say, like... I'm absolutely fine with the glass of champagne it wouldn't slow me down and plenty of plenty of other people have been as you said downing brandy and strychnine. like he wasn't he wasn't he was not gonna win the race not with that kind of
1: if I could be slightly inappropriate and I know you don't want that on your podcast but I mean edit this out if it's too racy uh champagne gives me terrible farts does it Yeah, that that could. I mean, in a way, that should make him go faster, though. Exactly. Mm. I was just
2: about to say that. Like, yeah, you could, you could, you could. um, Unless he was also having burps, because that would also probably push push him him back. back. (laughs) So, we need to do more research.
1: You you need a mathematical equation of you know uh, forward pressure versus back pressure caused by the two wind sources. Then
0: I think there's only one way to find out, and that's to try it. I run 24 of the 26 miles down a glass of champagne and see what happens. (laughs) Can
2: we send uh, some champagne to Paddy, get him to to try it out over different distances?
0: Yeah, we'll get Paddy O'Leary to do it. I'm sure he'd be happy to try it. But uh, yeah, so Charles Efron was uh, struggling and then had to pull out with just under two miles to go. So uh, Pietri, the Italian pastry chef began to take the lead uh, he was really feeling the effects of the extreme heat uh, the dehydration with it so he was really fatiguing hard he staggered into the stadium and he went the wrong way originally and uh, had to be pushed back or redirected back by the umpires and once he had to turn back he collapsed for the first time got up with a bit of help And uh, with a full stadium of somewhere between eighty and 90,000 people cheering him on. Now, Arthur Conan Doyle was there, uh, the uh, very famous writer. He was writing for the Daily Mail. He wrote, "'We are waiting, 80,000 of us, for them to appear, waiting anxiously, eagerly, long, turbulent swayings and heavings which mark the impatience of the multitude.'" Well this impatience continued to grow as Pietri fell over four more times on this final lap around the stadium and eventually the umpires had to help him up. In the end although he was completely exhausted he managed to get over the line first as the officials are panicking a bit as now second place American Johnny Hayes had come in flying into the arena And so the officials basically just helped him over the line. His final time was 2 hours 54 minutes 46 seconds but the final 10 minutes were needed for those last 340 meters. An American Johnny Hayes who came in second and the American team as we'll get into it a bit later loved to complain and loved to protest pretty much everything that happened at these Olympics. They complained about this. They lodged a protest against Pietri because he was helped over the line. And the complaint was accepted. So Pietri was disqualified and removed from the final standings. And uh, a BBC documentary actually claimed that there might have been a plot by Irish-Americans as the Irishmen were among those helping Pietri over the line. So they wanted Johnny Hayes, a fellow Irish-American, to win. So they thought if they got a hand on him and helped him over the line, they'd help him to be disqualified.
2: I don't want to accuse the 1908 or the 1904 American athletes of double standards or hypocrisy. However, <laughs> am I right in saying that in 1904 the American winner was literally carried over the finish line by his coaches?
0: You are correct.
2: Right, just wants just wants to put that in, Chris.
0: Ruth, uh, you're preaching to the choir here. And <laughs> anyway. Pietri our hero disqualified but because he wasn't responsible for it everyone felt pretty bad for him and everyone was on his side even Queen Alexandra decided she would award him a gilded silver cup which was exactly the same as the winner got so so, uh, they she gave him a silver cup the following day and he became a, a true national hero and an international star Even Irving Berlin wrote a hit song about him called The Rando. And there was a road in London named after him. Both Johnny Hayes and Pietri then had uh, four more races against each other once they turned professional. Both went back over to the USA and made their fame and fortune there. Pietri won all four times. So he proved himself to be the better man.
1: In cycling, if you crash in the last kilometre, you, I think you get the the same time if you're if you're because there was an incident in the 90s on the Champs Elysees in the last stage of the tour where there was a bunch crash and the guy in the green jersey who was called the phenomenal Jamaladine Abdoujaparov uh, basically knocked himself out but had to get over the finish line in the green jersey to win the jersey. So mm. his team plonked him on his bike. It would now be really bad thing someone who's possibly got a neck injury to be made get on a bike and cycle the last 10 meters to finish the race but can you can you assist people in the marathon now was that ever clarified that rule I mean can a can a punter pick you up I wonder
0: I don't think you can be helped I think you're disqualified if you're helped by somebody in, uh and in all, there was also that triathlon uh, a couple of years ago. I think it was just after the Rio Olympics. You know the the Brownlee brothers, who uh, I think have won gold and silver at both of the last two Olympics. A couple of weeks after the Rio Olympics, one of them had completely collapsed basically about 100 meters from the line and his brother was coming up behind him picked him up and helped him over the line i think they they, they finished the race and, and weren't disqualified so maybe it's different for every sport but uh i mean i think it's just brutal as ruth said you know four years earlier the americans with uh the, the guy who was carried over the line and uh, completely drugged up on strychnine and brandy and egg yolks uh, he didn't get disqualified yet. Uh, poor Pietri was uh, screwed over in front of the uh, eighty thousand strong crowd.
1: That's my recipe for cream caramel. Just so you guys know.
0: Oh, tasty!
2: One of the things I liked about that I found out about John Hayes um, was that he had felt quite deprived of a win at the Boston, nineteen oh seven. Marathon, which actually incidentally had been won by that Onadoga First Nations teenager Tom Longboat, which you had mentioned at the start. But the reason he felt deprived was because he was held up at a level crossing and had to wait for a train to pass. I just love these like little bits of like reasons why people didn't win marathons. In the first half of the twentieth century, whether it's been chased by dogs, downing champagne, or stuck at a level crossing, as if nobody had thought about this when they started, uh, where's the course going to be? So it's like, oh, yeah, let's just push it over a train track. There probably won't, there probably won't be a train. There's no, there's no reason to check.
0: Uh, Should we go into some cycling? I think we haven't uh, given cycling enough love yet in this podcast. And I know, Ruth, you've got a cycling story for us.
2: The 1,000-meter sprint. Do you know who won, Chris? Nobody won. Nobody won. There had been 16 heats in the first round, uh, four semifinals. So, like, it wasn't as if they hadn't, you know, really committed to finding a winner. Uh, but then in the final which had I think four participants three from Great Britain one from France Victor Johnson from Great Britain his he got a puncture so he had to shortly after starting so he had to retire another person punctured the tire but like for some reason they just did it really slowly and they decided that the race just took too long so nobody was a winner
0: now there was a the time limit. Uh, they had to <laughs> they had to do it in a certain time. And I can't remember the name of the modern event. Maybe David would know this. It's where you, I think it's just a sprint where you go around a couple of laps, basically just trying to make the other cyclist go first. And then only the last couple of laps count in the actual sprint. So it's just a bit of cat and mouse around the velodrome a few times. And then only the last, uh, the time of the last couple of laps count. So they're basically just trying to uh, to tease each other, and if they keep going for too long, and in this case, it's one minute forty five seconds, then the race is uh, deemed null and void.
2: There's plenty of cases where they've done a second race, but they were like, "No, nope, you were too slow. It's 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 done. Nobody's a winner."
1: In a stadium where people are also throwing discuses slash disc guy at the same time, there's a risk. You know, my immediate thought when Chris said that was, people had been struck by those. Not even the normal discus, the very heavy discus then. And maybe that's why they haven't finished the race.
0: I mean, that would be an excuse at least.
2: Real cycling.
1: Real, real cycling. cycling. <laughs> or uh, Ruth, I think this is good. The, uh, a combination of what's the running deer uh, shooting thing, brackets not a real deer. It's that, but it is with a real cyclist where you basically have to fire a hammer at a moving cyclist.
2: Or one of those bullets from the dueling. So like it should be a rubber bullet. So he won't kill you.
1: But like... <laughs> this is good oh my goodness if only we'd been baron what's his name who set all this up we could have put these events in
0: david what's the strangest thing you've been hit by on a bike
1: carrot carrot <laughs> <laughs> the uh i live in the center of dublin and when the um when the the vegetable shop puts out uh, the old carrots in the bin uh, the local rascals sometimes throw them at cyclists as they go by So I've been hit at different times by a carrot and a parsnip
0: Oh, that's not the parsnip transfer you want Parsnip is sorer <laughs> if anyone was wondering
2: <laughs> Well, it would also probably depend on like how gone off the carrot is Because it would get softer And like a fresher carrot would hurt more
1: De- Definitely, for sure Although, if you left it long enough, Ruth, it would fossilize and then it would be rock.
2: Okay. And, okay. Yeah. yeah. That would be wife? like
0: three hundred million yeah. years. <laughs> <laughs> got an expert geographer here.
2: Yeah. <laughs> More shills that Frenchman. He did win uh, gold for the tandem event, um, and he got silver in the five thousand meters. So it wasn't it wasn't all loss.
0: Uh, it's just so, it's so stupid though. I mean, sixteen heats. And uh, two of them only had one cyclist in it. So they went through a hell of a lot of effort here to get to a final, which they didn't even award a winner for.
1: Guys, I hate to be Johnny Two Wheels here, but if we're going to talk about the 1908 Olympic cycling program, we're going to have to talk about the one and only time bicycle polo featured in the Olympics, which from the ten-second bits of it that i've seen online it seems a bit like sort of violent croquet more than traditional horse polo and ireland one in ireland jerseys they're wearing ireland jerseys competing for gb and ireland
2: it was it was created by an irish guy in the 19th century oh in wicklow so like it, it was it was quite a like it was quite a popular sport for a bit it looks very exciting I think it's something that we should try and uh, bring back. Um, I did see an article on the BBC about the resurgence of um bicycle polo, which I mean is possibly an exaggeration. I'm not sure
1: it's you know it could be one of those things though that's just somehow deep in Irish DNA. We're really good at bicycle polo, like Croatia with uh water polo, or you know. Uh, Kenya with runners It could be that this is the thing We all should be doing Because we will kick ass at it
2: Now the only thing is Is that um, it, it migrated to America And it's now More traditionally played On a hard court Whereas um we used to play on grass. So, did that, I mean, I don't know if that will affect us um, and our prospects of winning.
0: <laughs> I don't know, David, what do you reckon on, on grass versus hard court? Would that uh, would that be an issue for your cycling grip and uh, technique?
1: Uh, great question, Chris. Thank you for throwing to me on this. I'm going to say that the surface is going to cut up if there's any sort of moisture in the air, as I dare say there will be in London <laughs> in 1908, that and that ball is going to get stuck in ruts so it's going to be like the difference between southern hemisphere rugby and northern hemisphere rugby played in winter where it's more of a slug fest here on the damp pitches whereas it's drier in australia so they get to they get to be a bit more flamboyant maybe mm. so i'm gonna say uh, cut the difference let's play it on an astro
0: nice Ooh. Yeah.
1: water
2: water or sand or doesn't matter
1: great question <laughs> Again, Ruth, I want neither sand nor water, but that weird early 90s version of AstroTurf where they put little things that look like mouse poo on. And if your knee touched it for more than a millionth of a second, your knee burst into flames, which brought a real terror vibe to uh, 5 a football.
0: Yeah, Yeah. no no Irish Irish man in in his his 20s 20s or 30s these these days days have knees, knees, which are quite the same.
2: The very first international match of um, bicycle polo was at the uh, was at Crystal Palace in 1901 and Ireland thrashed England 10-5. Oh, we
0: were good at this.
1: and we're, We were really we're good at this.
0: At yeah. National identity and Irish identity was a big part of these Olympics. It was, it was really the first Olympics that there was actual national teams and people came in to the arena for the opening ceremony as their nation and uh, the Irish issue, as they called it, was a big issue and a bunch of Irish athletes actually pulled out just ahead of the games once they found out they had to be part of the British team. There was also an issue with Finland and Russia because there were Finnish athletes there, but they uh, did not want to compete under the Russian flag. So in the end, they just had a name plate. Saying Finland on it with no flag. And uh, well the Russians, they had a big problem with the finish, but they couldn't really complain because they arrived to the games 13 days late. Why, Ruth? Oh!
2: Oh! Were the calendars wrong? Did they use did they use the Gregorian or not the Gregorian? The
0: they were still on the Julian calendar <laughs> in Russia. <laughs>
2: uh, I just yeah. like the thing is, this isn't the first time that this has happened. Like just Double check. Double check what date it's on. Just double check.
1: You say that, Ruth, but I'm going to say twice a year when the clocks change here, you make an absolute balls out of one thing you were supposed to do. So it's easier said than done to remember to switch to the other calendar
0: slash move the hour forward or back. Okay. Uh, You've got a feel for the Russians there. But the Greeks have been doing it. Uh, they've been coming to all the Olympics at this stage, uh, as well as hosting too. So they managed to, uh, to deal with it. But I guess they just care more about it all. <laughs> there was no rivalry or international rivalry quite like the Americans against the Brits in 1908. And that really took over the whole Olympics. Like it was the old ruling empire against the emerging powerhouse. Uh, it exposed a lot of British imperial anxieties as well. And it all started with the opening ceremony as well, Ruth, right?
2: As you said, the, um, uh, Finland didn't have a flag because they weren't allowed it. But like, there was a huge issue generally with flags. So, for example, South Africa was kind of a new concept. It was for different colonies were competing together so they had to create a flag especially for this event Um, the Chinese and Japanese flag were there even though there were no athletes from China or Japan Uh, and the Swedish and American flags were absent no one knows why they just uh, they forgot to put them up and quite a few of the Swedish athletes left in disgust And the Americans just brought their own. At the kind of opening ceremony, which was just a parade of athletes, uh, they went past the royal box and all of the flag bearers dipped their flag in honor of their majesties. And the American refused. He did not dip his flag. And it was a big controversy.
0: It's a tradition today as well. That uh, yeah, so the the Americans after that they they decided not to dip their flag to anyone. So the, the uh, it's I think part of the legislation in the U.S. that for their own pride they will never uh, bow down to any king or queen or anyone else. And it was apparently, or at least legend says that it was the Irish American athlete Martin Sheridan, who we spoke a fair bit about in the last podcast. That he said uh, this flag dips to no earthly king. But that uh, was only said about 40, 50 years later, so maybe it's uh, bullshit. What? It sounds, <laughs> it sounds good. That's, uh, so we're keeping it in the pod. The US were really unhappy with everything that the British did at these games. Uh, they apparently had dismal accommodation as well. So they moved to Brighton uh, to, to live and, and train and then would take the train back up to London. It was really the Americans who kept on complaining and it was James E. Sullivan for those of you who've listened to previous podcasts he is our at the moment the permanent scumbag of the week
2: we've decided given his very extreme white nationalist views that maybe scumbag is not the correct term but but we'll we'll, we'll throw it out to the audience and uh, we'll we'll find a better term in the future for for the moment we can call him the ultimate scumbag
0: i have a feeling there are worse people about to come <laughs> James C. Sullivan, he pretty much lodged a protest with the press every single day, complaining about one event or another, one thing that happened, one decision by the British officials. And it really escalated the tensions between the two nations, almost to like a government level. But at the same time, it surged the audience interest as well and got some bums on seats. Some of the the key talking points of this rivalry were in the tug of war and the 400 meters. There's also the pole vault. I want to ask David, as a prodigy in jumping in his earlier days, could you imagine jumping about five meters in the air and just landing on the ground with no no sand pit to fall into
1: does seem but it, that was that was the high jump as well wasn't it that mm. the, you just sort of landed on a car park then on the other side so um yeah i don't know how you would train for that you'd have to just throw yourself out of apple trees
2: but this also seems very foolish given that like there was a swimming pool right there in the middle of the stadium could they not have like pulled voltage into the swimming pool
1: well, oh. it's, fu- it's funny you mention that, Ruth, because one of my favorite bizarre sports, and I know later in the fi am going to be asked what I want to put in the Olympics, and this isn't it, but this is a close-run thing, is a Dutch sport called canal pole jumping. Where you run up to a canal there's a stick in the middle of the canal you climb up the canal vault yourself over the canal and then land on sand on the far side so what i'm saying is there is a precedent for this sport you think you've just (laughs) invented?
2: that also sounds like it would be really good um in the pentathlon
1: yeah well if the pentathlon is about trying to escape from things Another example of escaping, yeah. In this case, escape uh, escaping over a canal from someone on a horse
0: while carrying a very large pole.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, maybe <laughs> <to> have a <laughs>
0: telescopic one with you. <laughs> I, that's a great sport. I, I've seen that uh, canal uh, hopping thing from uh, the Netherlands. It's really really cool. I like it. But yeah, so in the, these days, the Americans were used to landing in sand or hay bales. The British were not. And they also didn't even have a hole to put your pole into. So uh, there was a big difference in the rules. And apparently the Americans uh, complained and complained. And in the end, they managed to get some hay bales in. So that was uh, one little victory for them. The tug of war was another big area of contention where you had three police teams competing uh, on behalf of britain whereas the usa were just made of uh, basically a bunch of field athletes and wrestlers and they were just wearing track shoes so normal track shoes and in the first round the liverpool police team beat the usa within seconds and the u.s complained that the Liverpudlians' boots were illegal and adapted with steel spikes to give them a better grip well, uh, the police said, well, no, actually, they're just old police boots.
2: My my favourite thing that I've read about this was just this one sentence in um, a book which said, after the tug of war, the Irish Republican press called for um, a dissolution of all diplomatic ties. <laughs> which <Wait, so, okay. laughs> <laughs> does have David's granddad vibes at the 1936 Olympics to it. Like, who are you to say that we will no longer have diplomatic ties? Do you have diplomatic ties to begin with?
1: <laughs> well, even, I mean, look, I'm all for the tug of war. Two things about the tug of war. One, if I was in it, I would wear, do you ever see the boots that um, people who fix telegraph poles use to walk yeah. up them, where they've just got like two foot spikes on them to dig into? Just wear, If everyone's wearing them, you're going nowhere. You're basically like subuteo players who've buried their bases in the earth. (laughs) And yeah, that's that's what I would also... Any sport that has of war in the title, the 100 meters could just be called the race of war. You're overblowing it. You're dooming the sport to an exit from the Olympics by (laughs) having of war in the title.
0: But the way things went in the press, uh, eventually people thought that the boots were just like you described. They were, geez, incredibly souped up boots with big spikes sticking into the ground. And so the London police then offered a rematch to the US so they, they wouldn't go home with their tails between their legs, feeling cheated and unhappy with their loss. So they offered to do it in stockings. No complaints there. However, the uh, US team never took up the challenge and just continued to, uh, to argue. And James C. E. Sullivan continued to moan about it and I think it was the 400 metres where it all kicked off and well it was more like the 402.3 metres as it was 440 yards it was included in Jeff Tibble's book The Strangest Moments of the Olympics and there was a Scottish runner Wyndham Halswell who ended up running the final on his own, or a rerun of the final on his own. Originally, in the final, there were three Americans, alongside Halswell, but there were no lanes in the 400 meters, so it was a bit of... It was the 400 meters of war. (laughs) Expected to be incredibly rowdy, as they did it in the States, it was a bit more uh, physical, a bit like the indoor 400 meters you have nowadays, actually, where, after the first 200, you go into... Uh, whatever lane you want, and you try and get home first. So after entering into the final straight, one of the Americans who was in the lead, John Carpenter, felt that Halswell was on his right shoulder, right behind him when he was about to pass. So Carpenter just started to drift further and further wide until <laughs> jostling him out right to the edge of the track. They were apparently within inches of the track. And reminder, you have a uh, velodrome right beside it. And so <laughs> rather than letting the race finish and then judging whether there was a foul or some kind of disqualification needed, one of the British officials made the, uh, made the decision to cut the finishing tape. And then there was uh, no winner at all. There were 30 minutes of arguing on the track and then another 30 minutes before a no race was the official verdict Thankfully, though, unlike in the cycling, they decided that they were going to have a rerun. And Carpenter, the guy who was uh, nudging his opponent out to the side, he was disqualified for boring, and a rerun was ordered. But the Americans, in solidarity with their teammate, decided not to run as well. Even Halswell, the Scot, was... uh, seemingly willing to forfeit because I guess he was a bit embarrassed about the fact that he'd have to run the race on his own and it's not really a glorious victory. But in the end, he was convinced to run it and he claimed a momentous victory in 50 seconds against nobody. So that was the first first walkover in track and field. He was so disillusioned by it all that he quit athletics and returned to the army. Uh, We'll never know whether he would have made a comeback because he unfortunately died in World War One in 1915 in France, which I guess is a fate that a lot of these athletes went through, but we shouldn't uh, delve into that too much.
1: Not yet. 50-second, 400 meters. I could do that. Do you think I could do that with a bunch of training? What's... No, maybe not. Well, what's... Um, What's Olympic pace for four hundred? It's like forty-four seconds.
0: Yeah, I think you I think you're doing well if you're if you can do forty-three to forty-five, you're you're probably at the Olympics. So it's not too I mean, considering you're racing against nobody, he could have walked it.
2: David, I feel fairly confident you would have got at least a silver know which case.
1: Um so there's a comedian called Mark Watson and he does twenty-four hour gigs where he just lets whatever madness is in the room take place. And um, drunkenly in the hi-fi bar in Melbourne, where it was taking place about, this is about 10 years ago, I declared I could run a five-minute mile with no training there and then. And so we didn't, we'd all, we, we couldn't measure a mile around the block, but someone had, you know, one of those ext- uh, measuring things, the metal ones that um, go <laughs> back. to <the> tape. <laughs> so We measured um, like four sides of the room. And they were, you know, it was like 15 meters this way, 20 meters that way, 15 meters, 20. And so then it was decided that I would run, whatever, 60 laps of this, and we just multiply it by two. And I still maintained that I would do a uh, five-minute mile pace. And uh, I did it. I absolutely hammered it. that about falling up, because people, every time I'd come around a corner, would throw pints of beer on the ground under me and I would fall and have to get up again. And in the end, I did my half mile in eight minutes. And that was, I was on 16 minute pace then.
0: Oh, the the real
1: 800 meters.
2: Talking a lot about real sports. And this sounds like a really good real
0: run.
1: Drunk, yeah, drunk miling, as it's known. Yeah. <laughs> The sentence that I I was really struck by, and this is going back to the Tug O slash of war. It was called Tug O war in Ireland. Um, And that is a competitor for the British team, which was Edward Barrett from Ballyduff County Kerry. And it's just this line. He went on to add wrestling bronze to the gold he won in the Tug of war. A remarkable athlete Barrow took part in the shot discus javelin and had been a member of the London hurling team that beat Cork in the nineteen oh one All Ireland hurling final. Yes. London beat Cork in the hurling. Come on. Shit. <laughs> Sorry, it's
0: not Olympics. <laughs> oh, it was in the last Olympics.
2: Nineteen oh four? Maybe, maybe. Yeah. Or Gaelic football, we're not sure. What
0: are them? <laughs>
2: fact that like is just it like it's completely unattested and I, I don't care but just since since we're talking about like a couple of Irish people Con O'Kelly uh was from he was born in county cork but he was a policeman in hull and when i was looking up trying to find information about him like i mean he, he had a fairly like successful career that's great and uh, so he was a boxer i just came across this one article that said that like he once got got called to a house um that had a poltergeist and he fought it and the poltergeist left uh, that was kind of his claim to fame. And I've seen this in two whole Daily Mail articles. So like, I don't really understand. Like, so it can't be, can't be untrue.
0: How did he fight it?
2: I, I, no one knows. Like, he went <laughs> into the house. He went into the house and like, the, he, like he got called round because the poltergeist was like getting frisky or something. And he went into the house. He did something. He left and ghost
1: was gone. Well, maybe you can reason with ghosts. ghost. Maybe if you have, a degree of charm, you can just be like, listen, I've been in the Olympics, so I know what I'm talking about here, but I need you to skedaddle and uh, get out of hole. Guys, I'm going to tell you one more incredible fact of O'Doherty family lore that I did not think I was going to be saying this on this podcast. My brother and I were in the car in about 1996 and we were listening to the radio and there was, uh, I think The Exorcist had just been re-released, the movie. And the guest was talking about a history of exorcism in Ireland and said, there hasn't been a full-time exorcist since the death of Father Fehan O'Doherty in 1991. That was my grandfather's brother. So I am the, the son of the son of the son of the uncle of the exorcist. <laughs> I'm basically it. Oh my god. Yeah, I know. It's unbelievable. And I said it to my dad. I, what I'm saying is I could have got into that house in Hull and the poltergeist would have sensed my presence and been like, despite the fact that I'm scared of mice and most things, I still think I could have got in there and done a job.
2: In this gig economy, there's no reason why you can't, like, you know, already diversify into that. Ruth, there's
1: something. no gigs. There's no gigs. So I'll do a tweet. <laughs> Does anyone have any ghosts? that need to be removed i'll do
0: it well david you say there's no gigs but i'm gonna go on a little tangent here uh i'm living in gothenburg and happen to run the gothenburg fringe festival so if you want to come in a couple of weeks and perform in front of a maximum 50 people you're very welcome
1: (laughs) i will i will enjoy every moment of it and then the two weeks i have to spend back here sitting in this room on my own from having gone to gothenburg to perform for for 50 people if there's any ghosts there uh, the old O'Doherty family motto is, Boston makes me feel good. <laughs> we're the Ghostbusters.
0: Let's put you to the test, David O'Doherty. You've heard about all of the exploits of some of the greatest athletes at this time. But if we were to transport you back to 1908 and London, which sport would you uh, most like to compete in and which sport do you think you could meddle in?
1: I would like to, so triple jump was my sport. I may have mentioned it already over 30 times on this podcast. And I know we spoke about possibly the Irish genetic predilection to bicycle polo, but I mean, there is a uh, line of non-academic thought that that triple jump is in fact an ancient Irish sport, That it was in the original, it was called ga, ga, Gal Rui, I think. And it was some sort of skipping jumping event in the original tolchon games mm-hmm. in 2000 BC. So I feel I would like to have gone there and done a job, but I, I think that might've been the period where there was a debate as to whether the triple jump should be hop, hop, jump, or hop, skip, jump. So I, yeah, I don't know how I would have fully prepared for that. But if I could have competed at anything, I mean, I'm going to say real tennis then. I'm going to go straight in there with the, with the real tennis.
0: Jeu de paume. C'est moi. The very first triple jump Olympian, or Olympic gold medalist in the modern era, was an Irishman, James B. Connolly. And he too wasn't sure about whether he should hop, skip and jump or hop, hop, jump. So just before he went on his first run in, you could do either. It was a bit of a freestyle back then. And he changed his complete technique, something he'd been doing for his whole life. He changed it for that triple jump and he won. So he was the very first modern Olympic champion in any sport. So yes, it was very much rooted in Irish uh, history. And we need another one. So maybe we should uh, throw you back in there.
1: I mean, I presume it was after this and all of these debates i mean we 'll only know when I listen to the next podcast as to is this when rules were then standardized because you have all these things like people barging each other in the running uh, and not being sure what the rules of triple jump are i presume someone probably someone French must have written them all down then.
2: This was such a disaster for rules that, yeah, it kind of compelled people to get together and write a standardised rule book for
1: most of the sports. Well, it's a pity they didn't write it for Olympic walking because still no one knows what the (laughs) hell is going on in that sport.
0: Yeah, we got we got into that in the last one as well. God, Olympic walking! Oh, it's brutal. I, I,
2: I, I, like I feel like if we need to alienate someone, this podcast it can't be an athletics because we're we're running short of fans there.
0: Dave, David can do whatever he likes, and uh, that's what our next topic is. <laughs> if you were to if you were to get rid of one Olympic sport or an Olympic event from the modern games taking place next year in Tokyo, and replace it with whatever you like. What would it be, David?
1: Great question, Chris. Looking at the lineup for 2020 slash 2021, it's the first year that skateboarding is in. And that, for me, I, as a skateboarder uh, in my youth, it's, a, it's sort of anti-Olympics. It's supposed to be a sport for people who don't particularly like sports. And the idea of it losing its cool, you know, you're meant to skate with your thumb sticking out through the uh, torn cuffs of your woolly jumper. You know what I mean? You're meant to tell everyone watching to F off because they don't understand your inner pain. You know, I don't (laughs) want to see that. I love skateboarding, but I just, there's no reason for it to be in the... It's a bit like golf, and I know golf is out already, but that... It's What's it doing there? In a way, you should be struck from the the annals of skateboarding for competing in something as lame as the Olympic uh, skateboarding event. So I'm going to axe that. And I'm going to... Reading about the 1908 Olympics, you guys, I was really struck by how good Irish people were, competing, granted, for Britain or America, at throwing things. Some of the top throwers, in particular, people from Munster throwing things. And I started to think to myself, why are Irish people so good at throwing things, particularly those from the Cork region? Answer is obviously road bowling. Now, road bowling, some international listeners might know, but it's like you get a little sort of lead cannonball in your hand and you have to feck it along a road from one village to another village. And there's various, I think it's, I think there's two techniques. There's a sort of a northern technique from Games in Armagh and a southern one, depending on where you release it. What I'm saying is, it's a super fun sport. I've always liked the look of it. I uh, would like it to come back into the Olympics with the slight change that, and this would be an environmental thing, you play it on busy urban streets. You don't even announce to the cars that you are doing it. You just, they all stuck in a traffic jam listening to uh, talk back radio about what assholes cyclists are. And suddenly you just start firing basically lead bullets at them. And I think that is something that I would enjoy seeing, particularly in the uh, forthcoming Tokyo Olympics.
0: That's some incredibly real road bowling right there. <laughs> <sighs> i love that
2: maybe we need to think about creating a real olympics for all of these real sports
1: yeah absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. i there is there is something so si- like you know the way you watch football and you're like well it's such a simple game that's obviously why it's so popular road bowling is the same it's going from village to village the way they can you can throw the ball with a spin on it to curve it round a bend in the road or whatever this is all good stuff how did it How is it an obscure Irish sport only played very occasionally in two parts of Ireland? It should be the world's game. Road
2: bowling. There's a huge egalitarianism to it, you know, that it can be played anywhere by anyone. So, yeah, I'm I'm all for it. We can stick it in. Road bowling it is.
0: Yes. Thanks, Ruth. It's in.
2: Is there, is there some sort of like official body that we can get in contact with the the Irish Society for Road Building? Me? Or do we need to set that up? Okay.
1: <laughs> I in this basement. I am hereby founding. Come on, Nabul. Na, 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 Lee <laughs> <boule>. <laughs> <laughs> And I am the first. What do you call the head of the Olympics? The some name in French. The chef affair. President.
2: Oh, okay, right. Yeah.
1: I'm <laughs> the president of the Come On uh, Boher Bulls. So uh, let's uh, bring it into schools. Also, with COVID, it's a good outdoorsy sport as well. That uh, yeah, you don't uh, you don't even have to come in contact with the other person. It's ideal.
2: Is it a team sport or is it one person?
1: I mean, I watched a documentary on it recently, uh, Ruth. That's why I'm so full of facts. But generally, you have a second person who stands up the road. You have two people. One finds it when it goes off the road, and another stands on the road a bit up as the target line. You should be hitting that line to try and keep it on the road as it makes its journey up there. So there is a team, but there's basically a star, me, and then the two of you are like the people in curling with the brushes. That's Mm. what you are for my road bowling.
2: They're very important. The people with the brushes are important.
1: You guys are very important. It's just that I get all the glory <laughs> when I win the Olympic Road
0: Bowl in gold. I'm happy with that. That's amazing. I love that. Uh, love that suggestion. This uh, podcast went on
2: quite a long time. It's a bit like the London games themselves. When we move on to Stockholm in 1912, we're going to get a little bit more standardized. We're going to start a reasonable two weeks, three week time frame, which is something we can all get behind. Thank you so much, David, for sharing with us all of your insights into diplomacy in 1936, um, <laughs> pole vaulting, and of course, uh come on the Boher Bulls. If people are not already following you, what which is seems bizarre. Unlikely, um, unlikely. It seems it seems incredibly unlikely, but but say we do have we have uh one listener in Argentina, we have a couple of listeners in the Philippines.
0: Vietnam as well. Yeah,
2: Vietnam as well. I he, I don't think that person in Vietnam has listened. After the first episode, I think I think I think they listened and they decided it wasn't for them. Um, <laughs> and we have and we have one person who listens to this podcast, uh, according to our statistics, on their Apple Watch, which I appreciate. I, re- I really appreciate that. So if you're listening, thank you for listening to us. But for those couple of people who are not following you, uh, are, what do you do? Where can they follow you and listen to you and watch you, etc.
1: Well, I used to do a thing called stand-up comedy, which unfortunately produces too many droplets to be a job anymore. It's like it's just gone the way of barrel making and so many of those old jobs. Uh, but I, um, to keep a toe in the water, I recorded an album in my car on my own into my phone during a storm in the night on an island off the West Coast about a month ago. David had already live in his own car during a pandemic and that's available on Bandcamp. but I mean this has really got me back into athletics now so I will probably um I'll probably be known on the track I mean I'm 44 and we've come across the Irish shooter who was 61 uh so it's still possible what's an event that I could still excel at show jumping maybe I've never been on a horse so that, that might take a, a yeah. while. So, if, yeah, if anyone has any suggestions as to what sport, I could still... Well, I won't. I'll let this Olympics go. Maybe the... Fo- what, where's the next Olympics? Where's to, yeah, yeah. OK. Well, hopefully I'll be allowed to go there without quarantining for two weeks. And if so, I will... What So what event will I enter?
2: Well, we'll, we'll throw it up on Twitter and ask for some uh, feedback. Uh, we'll get some experts to tune in. Uh, but like, yeah, I, I I mean, shooting might be a good bet. Um, dressage. Ugh. Do you like your horses dancing?
1: <laughs> Yawn, not skateboarding. I've really fallen <laughs> out. <laughs> if anyone listens to this podcast on their Apple Watch while skating, they have turned it off before oh, okay. now,
0: I'd say. I reckon you're in the show jumping, shooting, sailing area. That's... Um, that's a t- timeless sports, I'd say.
2: Yeah, not 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 that not that we want to limit you. Not that we want to limit you. We will support you no matter what you choose, um, and we will support your Olympic journey and possibly document it. Even
1: because- gymnastics, even if it's the what? one with the bars,
2: we will support you in this journey.
1: Literally, yeah. you will have to support me. <laughs>
2: for up, bars. On.
0: <laughs> <laughs> up you get onto the bars, a good boy. Onto the bars, it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Right, on that note, (laughs) it's a goodbye from us until Stockholm 1912.